What an honor to be here. Um, and I'm so encouraged that so many of you showed up when you knew, at least many of you did, that there wasn't AC. Uh, oh, there's a clock here, timing already. This, this introduction here does not count against the sermon time. I just want you to know that, Johnny, okay? Uh, as Johnny said, I grew up in this area. I went to Jefferson High School, as I said, back in the day when it was just a generic high school. And uh, I went there all four years, and we played Madison. Um, and I have a lot of bad memories here at Madison. Um, because every year we would just line up for our drubbing at the hands of Madison. Uh, I was the center on the football team, and there was a guy, you know, when you play against the same schools year in and year out, you get to know sort of the guys on the other team, not well, but you know you're going to run into them again, literally. And uh, there was a guy at Madison High School, I think his name was Andre, um, Andre the Giant. And um, I never really got to know Andre except that we spent a lot of time belly to belly, face to face. I was the center on the football team, he was the nose guard on the football team. I was the center on the basketball team, he was the center on the Madison basketball team. I was the shot putter and the high jumper on our track team, he was the shot putter and high jumper on his track team. And every year he would just beat the daylights out of me. Um, and I could look forward to that. Uh, oh great, Madison's on our schedule. Um, I know I'm going to spend the football game looking up at Andre's cleats uh, as he runs over me to get to the quarterback. Basketball, when we do the center jump, I know I'm going to be staring at his belly button as he skies up over me. Uh, shot put, I know I'm going to watch as the shot disappears like a little pee into the distance, you know. Um, high jump, he'll just sort of nonchalantly pass at whatever height I was jumping at until my senior year when we finally beat Madison in this gymnasium here. And um, Madison came within a couple of points of going to the state championship that year. Uh, so it was one of the great achievements in Jefferson sports history uh, and one of the rare ones. So I have mixed memories about coming back here because we used to just get our teeth knocked out here at Madison High School. Uh, okay, that's the end of the introduction. Um, I'm going to say a prayer and then the official sermon will start. Okay, will you pray with me? Father, we pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and your incomparably great power for us who believe. Amen. We're studying, I understand you guys are in a series on the book of Romans. Romans is a pivotal book in the history of the world, not just in the history of Christianity. Uh, and it's amazing how impactful Paul's letters are when you consider how little he wrote. Uh, if you add all of Paul's letters together, they would be less than one of Plato's dialogues. Uh, and yet, Paul's writings together changed the world, and his letter to the Romans is perhaps the most influential of all of those. Now, we have to sort of read between the lines when we read the epistles, because we only have one side of a conversation. It's like listening to somebody talk on the phone you're getting one side of a two-part conversation. And you sort of have to read between the lines to try to figure out what the other person is saying. The epistles are a conversation overheard. 
And Paul is responding in the letter to the Romans to things that are going on in the church in Rome. Now, the church in Rome, as I'm sure you've been told, but I'll remind you, was a mixed community. It was Jews um, who had grown up with monotheism and Jewish feasts. It was Latins, uh, Romans, who didn't understand monotheism. They didn't understand the Jewish festivals. They, didn't, they weren't looking for a Messiah. That, that word made no sense to them. Uh, they had their pantheon of gods. There were Greeks there who uh, spoke Greek, and there were people who spoke Latin, and there were people who spoke Hebrew. Um, they all had various rules about what was and wasn't acceptable behavior. They all had their own festivals. They had uh, their own gods. And Paul is writing into the midst of this mixed-up congregation. And there had always been tension in the Christian church from the very beginning of those who came out of a Jewish background and understood Messiah, understood that there was one God, understood that God revealed himself through prophets and through laws and through acts and history, and people who came to Christ out of a pagan context and had believed in many gods and who didn't understand the, the need for an atonement. The cross made no sense to them. There was not part of Roman or Greek theology. And so we see that in Acts 6, where the, even in the very beginning, this is the very beginning of the church, you'll notice that the Hellenistic Jews complained against the Hebraic Jews because they didn't feel like they were getting treated fairly. So from the very beginning, there's been tension in the church between those who come from a, a theological perspective that is amenable to Christianity and those who come in with no idea and trying to match those together. Jesus had said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And the book of Romans is about how do you render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and render unto God that which is God's in Caesar's hometown. And the world was watching. The world was watching because the church in Rome was a petri dish of what this new community could look like. What would it look like when Greeks and Latins and Jews got together in the name of Christ and celebrated their common life together despite their cultural, theological, personal differences and historic animosities? In that way, it's very much like they bring different things to it. They've got different expectations. They've got different rules about what it means to, to walk with God. And they're all trying to come together. And so Paul in the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, sort of lays out the good news. He says, this is what God has done for us. And that's what Romans 1 through 11 is. It's basically God has stepped into history in the person of Jesus Christ because of his great love for us. And in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he changes his whole focus and therefore, he says, it's therefore. Now, the only hermeneutical principle that I want to communicate to you today, hermeneutics is the science of studying scripture, is whenever you see a therefore, look what it's there for. Try to figure out what it's there for. Whenever you see a therefore, you need to go back. Well, Paul, in the first 11 chapters, has said, this is what God has done for us. He's changed the world. He's come into it to offer you love and life. The last five chapters... Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, are how do you live that out? 
given the fact that God loves you. He loves you unconditionally. He couldn't love you anymore. What does that mean for your life in the real world of Rome or in the real world of Vienna? He has moved in chapter 12, verse 1, from good news to good advice. All right? He's moved from good news to good advice. So Romans 13 and 14 is part of that good advice. These could very easily be the love chapters in addition to 1 Corinthians 13. What does it mean? What does it look like for people who have been loved by God, redeemed by God, saved by God, brought into a new relationship with God? What does that mean for your daily living? Johnny talked very effectively last week. I heard the sermon online um, about Romans chapter 12. And what does it mean to love one another? How does, what are the implications of that? Well, Romans 13 picks up on that. And Romans 13 answers the question, how do we relate? Given the fact that, that our citizenship is in heaven, says Paul, we are been redeemed, We've, we, this world is not our home, what does it mean to be a Roman citizen? What does it mean to be an American citizen when your real citizenship is in heaven? What does it mean to be a citizen of Great Britain, Uganda, Nigeria, Brazil? What does it mean to live in a real culture when your real citizenship is in heaven? And so Paul says something surprising in Romans 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. I say that's surprising because Paul is writing that from prison. And so there's a kind of a juxtaposition there. Paul is saying, obey the governing authorities because they've been put there by God, and yet here he is in jail. Well, the question Paul was trying to address is a very, very, very important one, especially for folks in Vienna, Virginia, in the year 2018, and that is, where does our allegiance to God leave off and our allegiance to Rome or Washington, D.C. begin? How, what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven and a citizen of earth? We have dual citizenship. After all, the Romans were very suspicious of the Christians. They were very suspicious because Christians followed a crucified Jew who had been killed by the Roman authorities with a sign hanging over his head that he was the king. And so when they found out that story, before that became good news to them, that was quite a curiosity because they believed that there was no king but Caesar. As a matter of fact, that's what they had shouted at the foot of the cross. We have no king but Caesar. What did it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Now, Paul was not at all shy about using his Roman citizenship. And we need to be not shy about using our American citizenship. As citizens of this country, we have certain rights and responsibilities. In Acts 16, we read that Paul replied, they have beaten us in public. He's in jail in Philippi, which was a Roman colony that had been set up by the Roman government for retired Roman soldiers. It was a very law and order town. They have beaten us in public uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens. They've thrown us into prison. Now we're going to discharge us in secret? No. He says, look, I'm a Roman citizen. I have got certain rights. You cannot treat me like that. As Christian people, we need to be able to say, look, as American citizens, we have rights. We have freedom of speech. We have freedom of assembly. 
You cannot zone us out of certain places. You cannot exclude us from the public square. We are American citizens. In Acts 22, Paul says this, when they had tied him up with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who is uncondemned? The centurion backs off and says, we can't do that. The state has certain limits about how it can relate to people of faith. And those limits are based on the fact that we are American citizens. We have the same rights as every other citizen. Paul is trying to assure the Christians in Rome and the authorities in Rome who would have gotten a hold of this letter that the Christians in, in not, were not a threat to Roman order. They were not trying to overthrow the Roman government. That this Jesus who had been killed on a cross by a Roman governor was not trying to overthrow the Roman government. He was not Barabbas. He was not a revolutionary. Christians are not a threat to lawful authority. Indeed, Christians make the best citizens when we are acting as the followers of God in Christ. But, and this is why Paul was in prison in Acts 5, we read about how they had been thrown in prison and the, the council takes them out and they say, you're not allowed to talk about uh, this Jesus anymore. And then Peter said, okay, there's a limit. There's a limit. When the state goes too far, when the state asks us, even demands us to do something that is against God's law, that's where we draw the line. And if it takes going to prison, we go to prison. If it takes paying a fine, we pay a fine. So the first thing I want to point out is that Christians are dual citizens. We are citizens of heaven, and we're citizens of whatever country we happen to live in. We are bound by God to obey his law first, but the laws of the state in which we live second. We have to follow the speed limits. We have to pay our taxes. We are responsible citizens. We get involved in the legislative process. We make our voices heard. We vote. We campaign for candidates we believe in. John Adams said, our Constitution was made only for moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate for the government of any other. The American experiment works best when it is driven by people of faith. I'll stop there and we'll move on to the second point that Paul makes in Romans 13. And I'll just stop here briefly because the, it's about debt. And apparently this was a problem in the Roman church as well. Apparently there were people in that church who were borrowing money from each other. You know, they would say, hey, brother, great to see you. Pass the peace, give a hug. Hey, by the way, can I borrow some money from you? We're brothers in Christ, et cetera, et cetera. And apparently that was becoming a problem because Paul feels the need to address it. And so in Romans 13, verse 8, he says, No one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The Bible has kind of an odd view about borrowing and loaning money. It doesn't like it very much. The Bible's view about borrowing and loaning is if you work, you shouldn't need to borrow except in emergency. And if you loan, you shouldn't loan, you should give. Give, well, 
Luke chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said this, Love your enemies. Lend to them without expecting anything back. That's your enemies. Those aren't people that you've checked their FICA score. Those aren't people... Jesus, our Lord, says, if an enemy asks you for something, you give. You don't loan. You give. Radical, radical love. It's one thing to say, well, God bless you, I'll pray for you. It's another thing to say, oh, okay, this isn't a loan, this is a gift. That's the command of Jesus. I didn't make that up. That was in the Bible. You can check. It's in yours, too. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, it says this, If there is a poor man among your brothers, and in any of the towns of the land where the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed. Freely lend him whatever he needs. In other words, don't sort of hold back. If somebody needs something, go ahead. And here it says lend, which is fine. Lend it to it, but don't be parsimonious with it. Be generous. Acts 2, 42 may not be on your screen. I, I might have added this later. This is the most concise description of the early church. It says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Right? They were devoted to four things, and as a result of that, all came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done among the apostles. And it, notice this, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. People were giving sacrificially. If somebody saw a need and I had the ability to meet that need, even if it meant selling something that I, that I owned in order to meet that person's need, they would do that in the early church. This was the petri dish of Christianity in the early days. And even their enemies looked at them and said, behold how they love one another. Wouldn't it be great if the community of Vienna and the community of Washington could look at Christians and say, watch how they integrate their various histories and their various cultures and their various understandings. Look how they love sacrificially for each other based, as I said, on Romans 1 to 11, that God has already given us everything in His Son, Jesus Christ. So, now on to Romans 14. We live in a polarized time, as I said. We are suspicious as a culture of those who differ politically, culturally, and theologically from us. It's very common in our culture today to look at the other and to to say, I don't know about that. Paul, in Romans chapter 14, is encouraging not just tolerance and non-judgmentalness. He's saying you need to go beyond toleration and beyond not judging to serving and encouraging. Romans 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Rome was a city like Washington that was built on power. One of the things I learned growing up in Washington was if you wanted money, you went to New York. If money was your goal, you lived in New York City. If power was your goal, you lived in Washington, D.C. Rome was the same way. Rome was populated by people who were power hungry, who wanted to win. It was a city for winners. 
It was a city. Rome was built on the idea that if they don't give it to you, you take it. The winner is, it's, winning isn't the only, it's, what is it? Winning isn't the, well, it's the everything. It was that whole mentality of if you've got the vote, step on their throats. You know, Rome was like that. And Paul is saying, as Christians, we need to stand against that culture, that power, and winning is the ultimate good. He says, the one who is weak, welcome him. Not so you can quarrel with him, not so you can win the argument. Because there were some who were just coming into faith in the Roman church. They were just, they were coming either out of paganism or out of Judaism or out of uh, Roman, some kind of odd, weird thing, and they didn't understand. And maybe they were bringing with them a faulty understanding of what it meant to serve God. And Paul is saying, you need to be very, very patient with those people and not shoot them with Bible bullets, not try to win the argument. He's saying the way that you win your brother into a deeper relationship with Christ is not to pass judgment on Jesus' servant. It's before Jesus that he's going to stand or fall. He will be upheld for the Lord. The Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, it's not your job to judge other Christians. You're not a fruit inspector. It's not your job to lift up their leaves and see how their fruit is doing. It's not your job to decide whether they are following Christ in the way that you want them to. That is not your role. You are not the judge of the jury and the executioner when it comes to another person's faith. In fact, says Paul, your role is to, in verse, chapter 12, verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. This turned the whole Roman understanding of the world upside down. Because as I said, Rome was about winning, coming out on top. Rome was about having the better office. Rome was about having the bigger salary, the better parking place, the nicer car, the bigger house, the better title. And Paul is saying, no. Followers of Christ, those are not our priorities. It's not about putting down the other person so you can lift yourself up. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Romans chapter 14, verse 10. Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. So each of us will give an account of himself to God. You're not, you're not accountable for your brother. You're accountable for, for yourself. You're accountable for how you treat your brother. He's going to have to answer for what he knows. There's another therefore in chapter 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of another brother. By saying any longer, he's implying that that was going on in the church in Rome. Saying, you guys got to stop that. You guys got to stop saying, I'm a better Christian than you are because my quiet time is half an hour and yours is 15 minutes. I'm a better Christian than you are because I tithe and you don't. I'm a better Christian than you are because I have a title in the church. I'm on the vestry and you're not. I'm a better Christian than you are because fill in the blank. I've got three bumper stickers on my car. 
and you don't have any bumper stickers on your car. He's saying, stop it. Just stop it, because that's not why Jesus came and died. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of what you eat, what you drink, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Now, there is within Christianity a very strong sense of, yeah, we saved by grace, but it's really rules. It's really being good. That's really what gets us in right relationship with God. And that was apparently a problem in the church in Rome. Spiritual rigidity is not a mark of spiritual maturity, but of spiritual immaturity. I'll repeat that. Spiritual rigidity, in other words, having lots of rules, eat that, don't eat that, touch that, don't touch that, be in church three days a week, don't be in church, go to Bible study, go do this. That kind of spiritual rigidity is not a mark of spiritual maturity, says Paul. It's a mark of spiritual immaturity because you have to rely on rules rather than relationship, rather than relationship with God. True strength is exhibited not so much in the exercise of power, but in the restraint of power. I think of Aretha Franklin and her voice. I mean, she could let it go. But when she really showed her control, when she really showed her power was when she held that voice back. And she, the, you could feel the power, but it wasn't loud. But there was strength there. Paul is saying we need to be those kind of people. As a matter of fact, Paul himself exhibited this by his chosen name. His given name was Saul. Saul was a very important name in Jewish history. Saul had been the first king. Saul was a very prominent name. If you were named Saul by your parents, it was kind of an honor. But as Saul moves through his Christian life, he chooses for himself, himself the name Paulus, which means small. Paul realized walking with God is not about being like Saul. It's about being small. It's about being a servant. It's about putting other people first. The chapter break here is in the wrong place. They didn't break the chapters up in the Bible until the Middle Ages. And so um, sometimes they got it right, sometimes they got it wrong. This is one of the places where they got it wrong. Chapter 15, verse 1, belongs with chapter 14. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring pay, praise to God. I want to close with sort of four observations here. Rigid spirituality is not mature spirituality. Rigid spirituality is not mature spirituality. Paul is saying, your neighbor matters more than your rules. Secondly, relationships matter more than rules. He's saying, if you want to see a mature Christian, look at somebody. When people are around them, they feel built up. They don't feel put down. When you walk away from a mature Christian, you feel like, that person really loves me. 
They love me in spite of myself. Not, that person disapproves of me, that person um, judges me. That's the way people, that's the way broken people left Jesus. Jesus only gave a hard time to people who felt like they were more righteous than he was. Broken people, Jesus, when they walked away from Jesus, they went away saying, I feel like I've just been in the presence of God and I feel loved. Third, mature Christians defer to less mature Christians out of love. If you think you're a mature Christian, ask yourself, am I willing to put aside my rules in order to love a weaker brother, in order to sort of bring them along in their faith? And finally, sometimes we choose to lose for love's sake. Rome was about winning. Rome was about being on top. And Paul is saying you've got to change your mindset. And sometimes you need to choose to lose in order that your brother or sister might be brought into a deeper relationship with Christ. There are things more important than external righteousness. There are things more important than obeying the rules. There are things more important than external disciplines. There's a relationship, brother, sister, brother, brother, and a relationship with God through Christ. Finally, Paul says we model this based on Philippians, his understanding. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. He's saying, look, this is your mind. Remember chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, the renewing of your mind, change your mind. This is your mind, okay? This is the mind you have in Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped. He didn't hold on to that righteousness that he had in God, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in the first century in Rome? A lot like it means to be today in Vienna. It means to be a good citizen. It means to be a good neighbor. Jesus said, great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Owe no one anything but love. Serve without judgment. Exercise your, and every one of you in here has a ministry, and I'll unpack that word. The word ministry is a, an expansion of the word many. It means small. The word, the word ministry literally means to become small. That's the linguistic root of the word ministry. It means to be a servant. It means to give your life up. It means to set down your preferences. It means to set down your rights for the sake of one for whom Christ died. And finally, a final therefore, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you, says Jesus. My power, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, says Paul, because Christ's power is exhibited through my willingness to be weak. I will boast more gladly in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, hardships, persecution, difficulties. For in my weakness, I find my strength. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you have a different agenda for us than the world. Thank you that you are willing to give us power beyond anything that we could ask or imagine. 
Thank you, Lord, that you stand beside us, are within us, behind us, and you've gone before us. And that therefore we don't need to worry. We don't need to be strong because you're strong. We can operate out of our weakness and we can choose to lose that others may win because we know, Father, that ultimately you have given your life that we might have life beyond anything that we could ask or imagine. We pray this in the strong name of your Son, who died that we may live. Amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. My chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my Savior has ransomed me. And like a flood, His mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace, unending love.